0: Welcome to the Military Transition Academy's PM Pathfinder series, where Max Rogers, former enlisted Marine turned naval officer and civilian energy industry project manager extraordinaire, teams up with the former Navy enlisted and Army officer candidate Eric Doc Wright, Vesta PM's founder and best selling author, alongside Jeremy Burdick, a retired Air Force chief, aircraft mechanic, and aviator turned civilian operations chief, and process specialist for Vesta PM and the PDU University, bring you an audio video suite to help you find the path while mentoring you in the profession of project management. Along the way, you can study for your CAPM, PMP, PMI, ACP, Scrum Master Certifications, or just maintain your professional development units in a casual, enjoyable conversation between friends. For a, another episode of the PM Pathfinder with Max, and we're going to cover a lot of ground today. I think it's like five or six topics, um, starting with the logical units of uh, iterations, interpreting the pros and cons of of those iterations, uh, translating a WBS into an adaptive iteration. So we're going to take a predictive uh, artifact and try to convert it into a uh, an adaptive, I guess, really more of a plan, if you will, or a, a flow. And then we're going to determine inputs for scope and then explain the importance of adaptive project tracking versus predictive plan-based tracking. So lots to cover, but they all should mesh and blend pretty well. So it's a fairly contiguous conversation all the way through. So let's just start off with iterations. What are logical units of iterations or what are iterations to you, Max?
1: Well, once again, it's it's project dependent and content environment dependent. But, uh, you know, on a adaptive project, whatever time, you know, the 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 Agile principles, you know, say that, you know, that uh, give a guideline of two weeks to two months with a preference toward shorter time frame. Uh, if you're, you know, XP use strictly focuses on one week iteration. So it depends on the environment you're in, the company you're with and what, what type of methodology you're using. But it, I think the most important thing is to focus on what makes sense for the project you're doing how much work are you trying to get accomplished for, you know, each iteration to deliver to the customer? And, uh, I think that that will change with time. If you're working on a project that's very time sensitive to get to market and the customer is very focused on being the first to market, then you want to have shorter iterations and, uh, and and show them the produce the value you can, even though you may feel that the iteration may be so short that you can't fully produce the value you need. The customer, once again, you know, is is the one that's driving this, and he wants his focus is on on speed to market. So uh, so you 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 use shorter iterations for them. If if there's not a uh, 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 a focus or a risk on time to market, then maybe longer iterations would make sense. Based on how much work you're trying to get done, what does that product roadmap look like? You know, how many releases do you have planned, and you know, can you can you line up uh, perhaps by extending the length of your iteration by just a few days or by a week? You can line up the the iterations with the releases, which which just makes good sense or make keeps things simpler because at the end of every iteration you're having a release and instead of of having several iterations and then a release and then a couple of more iterations and then a release, so so it can simplify things that way. But but the bottom line is it's it's project dependent. It's it's you know customer preference. It's it's what you're trying to do. All in. You have to look at the entire context of the project and what is the environment that you find yourself in. So
0: Perfect. Yeah, I love it. There's a couple of things you said in there that I want to bring out to the group here uh, that's listening is if you're doing a sprint, you're probably using scrum, right? Like that yep. is a yep. specific word. Yep. Uh, if not, you're probably calling it an iteration, but ultimately it's a time box, right? So there's a scale, you start something, you end something, and whether you call it one week or a month, ultimately you have a start stop. And so you pointed that out. I think that's really important to say, because you can even have iterations on a predictive project where you you work and you release, and then you you, you basically phase gate stuff. So you can think of it that way. And you said it really well with, it really depends on one, the project, two, uh, the stakeholders, and three, the customers. So if you're trying to deliver value really quickly, shorter iterations, probably let them see the value, make quick corrections, and then release something of value to market. So like if you're first to market, it doesn't have to be a fully baked cake. Maybe you put out a cupcake, right? And, then, and you're starting to get the customers uh, interested in your project or interested in your product in a sense of the first movers. Out in the world. So really well said. I mean, honestly, I think that kind of covers it. Logical units can be broken down into, you know, hours, days, weeks, months. So I, I think they're what the real big thing here is the time boxing. It's got a set time box.
1: And just make sure that you have all your ceremonies. You, know, you have that that iteration planning session you have your daily standups then at the end you have your iteration review and then you do your iteration retrospective. So that's that's the most important thing is that you go through the agile methodology of those ceremonies and uh, to 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 maintain the agile principles
0: Yeah perfect. Perfect. So that really takes us to the pros and cons. Like, what's some of the pros to, and we touched on some of them, the pros to an iteration?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, like, like you just said, you can time, you time box the iteration. So therefore, uh, it, 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 it uh, uh, fixes the schedule, but it releases the scope. Uh, You know, you're going to, if you're, if you're going to time box an iteration at two weeks, you know, based on the team's, Velocity. Uh, there's only so much work they can do in that two two week period. Uh, so, uh, uh, and if that's sufficient, you know, once again with a focus on adding value to the customer, and that's that's the thing that that you know that separates adaptive type methodologies from predictive type methodologies is you know at the end of a predictive project, the customer is going to get a bridge. Okay, that's that's open and ready for traffic to flow against. In an adaptive uh project, you know, the, the customer is gonna get a bite of a cupcake. Okay. At the end of the you know, and then and then he's gonna get half of a cupcake, and then he's gonna get three quarters of a cupcake, and he's gonna get the whole cupcake, and then he's gonna get a box of cupcakes, and then he's gonna get a fully blown cake. So it just keeps with each iteration, you get more and more and more. So uh and once again, I think it's driven by the customer and they are driven by the market by their funding uh by the demand the business demands they have on them so it's uh uh you got to keep going back to especially in adaptive uh projects the customer has a much stronger position in an ad- during the execution of an adaptive project than they do in a predictive project Uh, I mean, you got to keep the customer satisfied and keep them informed and make sure that they're they're satisfied with the progress uh, in a predicted project. But the customer is really dry or or the product owner who, you know, who is the customer's representative. But one of those two individuals are driving the train in an adaptive uh, uh, environment and you got to listen to them. You know, it's it's all, you know, back to, you know, one of the 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 manifesto highlights, you know, of agile is we, is customer collaboration, you know? So, uh, and that's a highly valued. So, uh, so that's, that's what you want to focus on. Let your customer drive what you're doing.
0: I love that. I think that's, uh, that, that shows the flexibility of the framework and how you can adapt with that early feedback. So the customer says something, Hey man, I like this. Or, you know, if you did this, this would be real nice, right? Now let's change it, right? You, you didn't want uh, vanilla frosting? Great, yeah. let's put chocolate yeah. on there. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. only given you one cupcake out of the dozen, so it's not a big deal, right? We'll change the other 11. You'll like, you'll have a party. Right. Uh, risk mitigation, I think, is there too. It's because you can, as you're delivering, you're triggering risks all the time, right? Exactly. So you to see them.
1: Exactly. And that's why you want to balance risk and value. You know that's why there. You know you have your your uh, iteration backlog, and then you have a risk-based iteration backlog, which which takes uh, changes the priorities that you're working on based on the risk and what your what your once again your customers appetite for risk. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: If if they don't have a very high appetite for risk then you 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 try to mitigate all the risk as much as you can or or get them to the the least amount of negative impact that that you you can whereas if they if they're prone to have a higher appetite for risk and value is more important to them then uh, you focus on the value and not so much on the risk but but you always it's you know risk and and value are the yin and yang of adaptive projects and 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 they're completely connected systems. So when one goes up, the other one goes down and the other and one goes down, the other one goes up. So, but, but as a good project manager or a practitioner of good project management methodologies, you need to focus on risk and value. So,
0: yeah, I I agree a hundred percent. I also think it, uh, one of the other pros before we jump into some cons is, uh, learning. Right, you you as an organization, you set up a a system of continuous improvement when you do adaptive projects because because of those ceremonies like the retro. How do we do this better? Because of the the review where you're getting the customers all in the room, getting the team in the room, and you're showing them the product. Right, you're learning. You're setting a culture of hey guys, just because we planned it this way does not mean that's what how we're going to do it on the next sprint. We, we always are willing to change we embrace change right over the plan so i think that's important
1: and i think the flexibility of adaptive type methodologies is obvious when exactly what we're talking about right here you you may be executing a project under scrum and with scrum but you can you still import principles from lean In order to do continuous improvement. So, so, you know, you, you pick a methodology within the agile family of methodologies. It's not mutually exclusive of other ones. Uh, You you may be doing a scrum, but decide that you want to, you know, use a, an XP principle and have paired programs. You know, pair of developers working together. There's, you know, there that 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 to me just shows the 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 flexibility and the benefit of uh, agile methodologies. In that you can, it's like a la carte. You know, pick and choose the things that work. As long as you're focused on delivering quality to your customer and executing the project as efficiently and effectively as you can you've got this huge menu that you can select from what that, what works best in the environment and the context of your project. So
0: I agree. I couldn't agree more. I, I I think that's spot on. And then as we move to like the cons, like what are some of the bad things that come with iterations? One thing I can think of is, you know, you, you, the I guess the, the overhead and the coordination, right? So you have to coordinate inter- iterations. Whereas if you can do it, a predictive plan from start to end, mm-hmm. all the planning was done up front. It was batched. And now just, just go kachoon, 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 right? Go go execute. Whereas iterations, you got to have, you put the plan for them, right? You have to put in time for them. There's And each one of them is a cost. It's a man hour thing. So uh, I'm curious to see what you think on the cons of iterations.
1: One of the cons that I've experienced myself is that when you, you you, commit to using an adaptive type of methodology, then you have stakeholders that want detailed planning. Even though you you know you've you've ed- tried to educate th- them and the organization about how adaptive is different than inter- uh than predictive, and especially if it's an organization that is used to doing predictive projects and is now transitioning or or trying to adopt adaptive methodologies, you're these uh, they're. The stakeholders may be used to seeing a formalized plan and can see into the future and know what to expect. And whereas in an adaptive, uh, the con, one of the cons is, hey, we're not looking that far down the road. Okay, we're we're uh, on a if you picture a predictive environment that once you get the plan in place, you're on a straight road. You go right down the road where in an adaptive methodology, the road's twisting and turn and the switch bikes. And you can only see up to the next curve. And that's the end of the iteration. You do the iteration review, the iteration retrospective, and then boom, then you do the next iteration planning session and then do the work and you can only see to the next curve in the road. So it's, uh, that, that can be a con as far as not being able to see further into the future as far as the plan is concerned until you educate your stakeholders within the organization that hey no, that's this is a different way of of uh executing this project and you know it it's 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 I'm happy to see that you're interested in looking that far down the road but right now it's just not necessary the way the way we're we're executing this project it's not necessary to have that level of planning at this point in time but rest assured it's coming. It will be, it will come. You will, we will, you will see that in the future, but we're not going to do it until just before we get to that iteration that involves that that work.
0: Yeah. You bring up, you bring up two really good points is, you know, just as you said, that is it makes it a challenge to estimate, right. Each iteration because you don't know, right. You don't know what you don't know until you get into it. And then, you know, because it's not planned out, how do you put dollar signs to it? I mean, you may work it in a burn down chart or some or a burn up chart or something like that, but but ultimately the planning is a little bit lighter. So the estimating is going to be lighter. Mm-hmm. Uh stakeholders might not be comfortable with that. You know, when they're used to seeing a milestone chart and a Gantt chart and they know exactly when this activity is going to be done. I mean, as long as there's not slip, right? Because no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Um But that, so that really pinged on me when you said what you said, like with the whole stakeholder thing, I, I think that's a challenge estimating wise. I think it's another challenge bringing stakeholders and keeping them engaged with this project, because the only way adaptive projects really work is if customers and stakeholders stay close to it and be a part of those ceremonies, you know, so that that's a big risk in my opinion.
1: They have to, they've got to be a pig and not a chicken on the, in the ham and egg sandwich scenario. So, exactly. And, and you, uh, as a project manager, management practitioner, it, you have to focus on getting those stakeholders engaged and you have to spend time with them and you have to explain to them what's the difference between being interested and being engaged. And, and, and like I said, the greatest thing is just tell them, Hey, it's a, it's a ham and egg sandwich okay you know the chickens involved, the pigs committed and I'm looking for commitment from you and uh, I've used that in the past and it worked it, it makes a point in uh, in a kickoff meeting when the project sponsor and the, the project all the project stakeholders are there. And and whenever you know a stakeholder looks at you and says, hey, we got all the confidence in the world in in your ability to manage this project and, and I want to be involved with this project, you know, throughout the entire life cycle of the project, I would always look at them and say, Well, well thanks. I appreciate that. But I would much rather you be committed to this project than to simply be involved. And then they look at you sort of quimsically and they go, well, what are you talking about? And then you sell them ham and egg sandwich. You know, the chicken's involved, the pig's committed. I, I, I'm i looking for commitment is what I need. And, yeah. uh, and that's, that's what, that's my definition of support, support the team. You want to support the team as a stakeholder, you support the team by committing to this project.
0: So, right. Oh, I love it. I mean, it, it really is a difference, you know, where one's just, Hey, got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, be involved as I can be when I can be, and it. But it's not committed to the point where, hey man, the pig is committed. You want a it's bunch it's of pigs on your team? <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> They've done it. They did the hard work. Yep. Uh, this next one, as we move to the next uh, topic, mm-hmm. it's going to be a bit of a stretch. I think I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. So uh, bear with us, listeners. Uh, we're translating a WBS, a very predictive artifact, right? It, it's an amazing tool. It's probably, it's probably one of the most ubiquitously used tools in predictive project management, the work breakdown structure or the WBS. And then how would we make that into something that we could use in an adaptive iteration? So uh, happy to throw a couple things out there, but if you've kind of got formulated thoughts, Max, I'll, I'll let you have it.
1: I, I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days, and and first of all, let's compare. What are we trying to compare? Uh, you know, in a predictive uh, methodology, the WBS is the complete and total description of the work and effort required to successfully complete this project. That, by definition, is the work breakdown structure. Whereas What we're comparing it to is basically the product backlog and the iteration backlog in an adaptive environment. Whereas because of the nature of adaptive projects and the changes that are expected and invited and deal with, the, 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 the iteration and the product backlogs are made up of User stories, which are similar to the task in a WBS, but the difference is the task in a WBS are well-defined and they're rigid. User stories in an adaptive environment are negotiable and subject to change, and they do as the project is executed. So uh, what you wind up with, you're comparing uh, a, a WBS is a stone, a Iteration backlog or a product backlog is a box of sand because that, that it's gonna it can change you can change the shape you can you can pour some out you can add some more in uh, but the bottom and the bottom line is uh, you know a WBS fully and completely defines all the work and effort and task associated with a project whereas the backlog whether it's the product backlog or the iteration backlog are always going to be incomplete. It's not necessary for them to be complete because you're going to continue doing iterations until that you reach the definition of done or the customer says, okay, this is enough. Got it. Thank you. So the the difference between the scope basically of an adaptive project and a and a predictive is comes down to the difference between a WBS and a backlog or a backlog slash user story. So that's because the in my mind, they're they're sort of the user stories are the task in a WBS. So
0: oh wow. I don't know that I could explain that uh nearly as well. So I, I do appreciate the word pictures. I love the analogy of uh, a stone, right? It, it's almost like the the tablets from Moses, right? They're yep, chiseled. Exactly we don't embrace change on our WBS because we've already decided that through the SMEs, through all our planning, that this is what we're doing. And we've captured 100% of the work, the sand, a great, great analogy, right? We can always pour a little bit more in, we can scrape some out. If it didn't work, change it up, uh, change the form. a hole
1: in the middle of the, <laughs> push some to the side, you know, yeah. pile it up in the middle. It's, it's uh malleable. You can that change.
0: Great word. I, I think, Ultimately, like if you were going to go through stages of planning, you could take an iteration and say, okay, guys, we're going to plan this project. We're going to deliver a little project. Then we're going to inspect it. And then we'll probably end up running out of time for that iteration. And then we go to iteration two. Mm -hmm. We already did some, most of the planning in iteration one. Let's go back, do a little bit more, inspect a little bit more, and then get into the maintenance side of things. You know, did we do our tech writing? Did we... You know so you could with the WBS you could essentially take and break them down into you know planning analysis design uh testing and then you know deployment could be a whole nother iteration. so it's not that it's not doable. it's just it's an apple and an orange comparison they're they're so very different. it's a difficult task. but I think if you break it down and say, Hey, it's more like my schedule than it is my WBS, where I'm just going to say, I'm going to take these activities, put it into this iteration, and then I'm going to go do a little bit of what I didn't get done in the next iteration. You might be able to help convert your, your WBS into something adaptive. If in case, why would you ever do this, right? If your company decided that, Hey, we're going adaptive guys, make it happen, but you're only used to doing WBSs. So exactly
1: and that's all part of your you know your project planning analysis up front as far as as uh you know if if you're directed as to what methodology to use then hey that's it that's what the boss said but if you're in an organization that has embraced has traditionally done predictive but is now embraced adaptive methodologies they're going to look to you that organization is going to look to you as a uh, and 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 I'm trying to avoid using the word professional project manager because in adaptive we don't have project managers, but we have professional project practitioners. Okay, that that are experienced. In, that, but the organization is going to expect you to do an analysis with the team, probably about okay, guys, what how should we approach this i mean is it uh and you know you can you, you know the the you start off with with you know how complex is this is if it's the greater the complexity uh the more you tend to to lean toward an adaptive sort of uh sort of solution uh and and then look at the scope if the scope is certain then you start leaning toward the predictive way but you know if you wind up in a situation that that is a complex complex situation with a lot of uncertainty with regard to scope, then that to me, that's just, that's funneling down. That cone is coming down to, Hey, this is, should be an adaptive sort of pro if, if you don't want to waste a lot of money, if you don't want to take a lot of risk, then this is the way to approach this.
0: I agree. Agreed. Agreed. I think it's really great. And, you know, we talked a little bit about it, like even on the back, you've said it during a couple of the other um uh, sections that we've talked about before is, you know, scope, right? What are we doing? Is it fuzzy? Is it clear? Um, do we have a lot of information? Have we done this before, right? A lot of different decisions to determine which form you're going to use, but what are some good inputs for that scope? Like what do you use primarily to determine the scope of the project when you're handed a project?
1: Well, it depends on the level of requirements you're given. I mean, if you know, if you're if a customer says, hey, I want you to put a bridge over the River Kwai at this location, and that's the end of the requirements, then you know, you got a lot of work to do to develop the scope. Uh if uh an owner though, or a customer comes to you and says, Look, I want to I want a bridge across this river at this location. I want it to be a, a double steel tower suspension bridge. Uh, I needed to have eight lanes of traffic and a pedestrian lane and let's put a bike lane in it also. And I want it to be a concrete deck instead of asphalt. Uh, and, you know, get that level of of requirements. I mean, that that's what generates the scope of the project. And uh uh, I had a great uh, experience, and it's just right after I retired uh, from the Navy, a program that I had worked in for five years. They were radically changing the program's equipment support. They were going from a manned system to an unmanned system. And in order to support the new unmanned system, They needed a facility, an upland facility away from the pier where they could take this equipment and disassemble it and do maintenance on something. But it had never been done before. So they needed uh, uh, a requirements document to To go through to to start with the planning and the scope development, so they they hired me as a as a contractor because uh, I had just spent five years being the program sponsor, basically for this 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 program to go in. I, I knew all the stakeholders, I knew who all the players were, uh, to go in and set out and conduct interviews and talk to people and develop the requirements. For I wasn't asked to design the building. Or, or to even, you know, uh, define the scope of the project from from a contractual standpoint. I was asked to just put together the requirements document, and uh, and that's exactly what I used. Uh, several different types of techniques, most of which were just one-on-one interviews and 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 group brainstorming sessions again. Okay, i of say, okay, guys, let's talk about, you know, you know, when, you know, today with the manned system, when we come back from sea, this is what we do as far as breaking it down, transport. Okay. Now, now we have to imagine, we don't know what this unmanned system is going to be, but we do know we got to get it out of the submarine, we got to get it transported up to the facility, we got to offload it off the transportation, whatever, that. whether it's a rail transport, whether it's a truck transport, whatever, we got to get it off the transport system. And then within the facility, we get got to be able to move this thing around at the beginning, the 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 equipment's going to weigh sixteen thousand pounds. But then, as we disassemble it and get it, when you get down to the very end of the building, the component weights are only going to be about two or three thousand pounds. So, so therefore, we don't need the same crane system system all throughout the building. We can save money by by having a, a, a modulated crane uh, a lifting system throughout the building start at the, when you've got the assembled component, yes, you need the full capacity of the lifting equipment. But when you're down at the component level, you don't need it. You can go to a much smaller crane, which is much less expensive. Typically it's faster. And uh, so, but 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 set, I sit down, I, it took me a year to write up and, and to come up with this. Now the requirements document turned out to be, you know, a couple of hundred pages thick, but, and, but then that became the basis that they gave to an architect and engineering firm to develop the scope of the, the facility that they were going to they were going to design this facility and build this facility. So, so it all comes down, it starts with the requirements and, the more requirements you have, and the better defined they are, the easier it is to develop the scope. But if wow. you're not given a lot of requirements and just told to go to do something, you're going to, what you're going to find out is you're going to be in a change rich environment because you know the customer may tell you, hey, I just need you to be able to move this piece of equipment from A to B, and okay, so you design something that will move it from A to B very efficiently. And then he goes, oh, but you know, it's got to be able to lift, you know, this amount of weight in this amount of time, and and to do it with a certain amount of certainty, and and all these other. And it's like, well, those are requirements that you know, it's it's much more than the you know the scope of being able to lift a piece of equipment. You got a lot of details in lifting that piece of equipment, and and that's the that that's how you generate uh comprehensive, complete. Scope statements is by starting with comprehensive component requirements and you wow. build up. So
0: that's a what a great example. Like I love it in the story. So let's just kind of break down some of the things that you probably saw when you were doing that over the year time frame. You probably saw a business case of some sort that said, Hey, we want to convert to unmanned, right? right. And here's the business value, right? There's something in there. So now you kind of have the why, right? Uh, and there's probably a, some kind of a project charter, maybe not a formulated one up front, but it could have been in the sense of, hey, Max, we want you to do this. This is your contract, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which very well could have been your project charter. I need to go build these requirements.
1: It, and it was a a directive from DOD level that said, get the man out of the loop. For It was a safety issue as far as you know, getting the man out of the loop, uh, because you're you're subjecting the sailors and these divers to risk, physical risk, when you're doing this. Well, you know, you break a piece of equipment or you lose a piece of equipment, uh, you know, it's going to hurt your mission and it's going to cost you some money and cost you some time. But nobody's got to write a letter to the next akin.
0: That's and,
1: right. Uh, so that's and that that was the driving factor. Was to get the man out of the loop.
0: Yeah, right, man. Wow. So, I mean, in your case, you didn't have like historical project data to go look at, right? No.
1: We and had and it was and the equipment hadn't even been developed yet. We no. truly had to imagine and and, and to base. But I, I was pleasantly surprised that the these old hairy chested bare knuckle deep sea divers who had been doing this their whole career could sit down around a table and talk about the future that didn't include them. That, uh, you know, they, they, we basically put ourselves, the guys that had been doing this for, for many years, we, we were asked to come up with a solution to put ourselves out of business. Right. uh, To progress to the next level. And, yeah, too
0: cool. I mean, that's expert judgment right there, right? If you're if you're talking, if you're bringing into the PMBOK and saying, hey, listen, what do we do to create scope? You guys had it all. I mean, you have the expert judgment, you had uh, constraints and assumptions, you know, because you kind of knew what, here's the problem set. How do we lift heavy equipment? Uh, the assumption is there's going to be some people that are probably pissed off. They're losing their job and livelihood because there's some pride there, you know? So, I mean, that would be... There they could be a chance for misinformation or bad information or just reluctant to be a part of it. So I think that's really an interesting, interesting story that we get to talk about on this show and kind of show you all these little inputs that create one, and you said it, your scope statement. Mm-hmm. And, and that helps determine the overall project scope as well. So how cool. And it
1: and, it, and it's, you know, the opportunity to put the the... The subject matter experts together. It was easy for me to find people who had decades of experience of taking equipment to sea, deep ocean engineering equipment to sea, and using it and, and lowering it to the seafloor and operating and raising it back up to the surface and recovering on board a ship. And and it was all great. And they could sit around and they could spend days telling you how to do it exactly. This is what you need to do. But then you come up with, okay, great, but we got to put this in a submarine. And then the, and everybody goes, oh, what do you mean you got to put, yeah, it's got to go inside a submarine. Wow. Oh, wow. So now, so back away from all this equipment that you're used to using and just think about how it worked and the whole, you know, you know, cable goes out, cable comes in, cable gets level lined on the, on the drum of the winch. And, but it can't be this, uh, you know, Twenty foot high winch that sits on the back of a, an open deck of an of an offshore work vessel. You know this has got to fit somewhere, somehow in a compartment of a submarine. And you got to put it in there. You know you're going to someday you're going to have to take it out. You're going to have to work on it. You got to maintain it. You know you got to change a cable on it. You know how how are you going to get this you know ten thousand feet of cable off this this uh, uh, you know winch drum? And replace it on a regular basis.
0: Right. Right. Talk about Uh, it. it, uh,
1: It really changes the 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 approach. But once again, it comes back to we're trying to develop the scope of this project. But and before we we get carried away with with how much we know about the scope or even how much we don't know about it we got to take one step back and say, okay, let's, let's break the scope down into actual individual requirements. Okay. And then we can take the requirements and group them together to create logical scope. And, but, but it's hard to, to do it the other way around without taking a lot of time, a lot of consideration. And, uh, um, you know, and it was just, uh, yeah, this, this, this year that I spent, the biggest frustration was no matter how much thought I put into who's the right person to have in the room for this discussion and how many discussions I had with other people about who is the right people, and who are the right people and make sure we got them. We inevitably would get in and start the discussion. And before we got two hours into it, we realized there was someone else we needed to have in the in the discussion, and they may have been on the other side of the country. They might have been on leave. They they might they they usually were not available. And then you had to okay, you know, figure it was so it was a huge planning uh, uh, problem trying to get you know forty to sixty individuals together at different times at the same location to discuss this and focus on it and, and be able to carve, you know, one or two days out of their busy life to sit down and focus on this and talk about it. So
0: oh well, it worked
1: the, out just fine.
0: The travel budget on that one must've been, um, <laughs> but now, okay. Last question. And before we move to the uh, next topic of, of, because I think that that dovetails perfectly with project tracking is how did you maintain um, change control on that? Because I'm sure as you learned more with these requirements, it was like, oh, well, we got to go back to requirement number one, because this is completely different.
1: Well, the, the the approach that we took was that we weren't concerned about changes in the requirements together. All we want to do was list all the requirements and make sure we covered everything, even even requirements that were once the, the program progressed, we're, discuss, we're determined to be, no, this is not a requirement, and so we can take it out. But, but our approach was, let's, let's give them a list of requirements that can be whittled down to what they think is the proper scope of the project. But let's ensure that we don't leave anything out of a requirement that then becomes a change. It's like, oh, you guys didn't include this. Now you want to include it. Well, then that affects this and it's going to affect this and it's going to affect this. So now you've got this huge change. So so the approach we took was, hey, let let's put everything, including the kitchen sink in this and then let the people who are making the decision about the scope of the project. Let them, you know, yes, 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 no, no, maybe, maybe, yes, yes, no. And then do away with all the no's and then reconsider all the maybes. And then you're left with all the yeses and then take that list of requirements. Yes, requirements and turn them into the scope of the project.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Much better to have too many requirements than not enough. You know, I like that. Yep.
1: Yep. It's an old saying, it's better to have it, not need it, than to need it, not have it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You, unless you're the army guy rucking it out.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It all but, needs to be way less than forty pounds and fit on your back. So uh, that's
0: right. You nobody likes to retrograde anything. Yep. Um, but um as as you talk about this, I mean, it, it starts to really um work on the the thought process of how do we track it? Like, how are we tracking adaptive projects, and then compare that to how do we track plan based. I think on the plan based we can start there because that's a little bit easier. And your story just really kind of, you know, plays well with that. So just talk to me a little bit about the difference between that predictive and the adaptive project tracking.
1: Well I think the approach of predictive is to allow you to track to two things, plan and track. And you know the that that phase of the project that we call monitoring controlling. That's where you discover whether or not you did adequate planning and whether or not the plans that you developed, all your project management plan, all those those sub-management plans that are in your project management plan, you discover how effective and efficient they are when you're monitoring and controlling, which is the tracking part of it. Um, When you flip over, when you find yourself in the adaptive environment, uh the good news is the tracking becomes a lot less uh, cumbersome because you're only you're focused at the iteration level, which is one week, two week, 30 days at the most. And so you and at the beginning of that, you only got one one day, eight hours, to do your iteration planning whereas half that time is when the product owner is going to be explaining to you about what this product is, what the functionality is, what we want to do and and how it is. And then the sec then you get 4 hours in the afternoon for the team to plan. Okay. This is what we're willing to commit to during this iteration. And this is what we can do. We develop the user stories. We assign story points to each one so that we make sure that we're not going to violate. We know what our team's velocity is. And and so we want to make sure that we use, develop uh, story points so that we easily add them up and say okay, and and look and say okay, we're not going to violate uh, exceeding our velocity, our team velocity during this iteration. And then you approach it with the fact that okay, we're time bound. We got whatever the iteration time is to work on this. We've committed this. What do, if things doesn't don't get done? You simply hand those back to the product owner. They look. They add them. They 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 put them back on the product backlog and then groom the product backlog and decide, okay, what is the priority of this, this feature? Where does it go? And, and so it's, it's uh, like I said, in my mind, it's just that the tracking in adaptive projects is just simpler because the time period that you're tracking over is much shorter. You know, on, your, on a predictive project, you're tracking the entire project lifecycle the entire project, you know, that you're executing and monitoring and controlling. That's what you're, you're, you're tracking. Whereas in adaptive, you're only tracking for the next week or two weeks or 30 days. And then then the good news is you get to stop. You get to look at how well you did it. You get to talk with the, with the team about what worked and what didn't work and how we can improve it. And then you make what changes are necessary. And then you get another 30 days to do it all over again. And then you know, continuously improve. And so it's just, it's just simpler in my mind to, uh, to, to track it in an adaptive environment, to track the progress of the, of the project.
0: All right. Yeah. I like it. I, when I, when I, when I read it and I, I was thinking about it, you know, a lot of times, like we when we talk about adaptive tracking, it's, you know, you've got the burn up, burn down charts, you've got Couple other different like velocity. You mentioned that, so I think that's that's important. Story points. You brought that up, um, and I always thought too, like you're you're looking at your backlog, and that can always change, so it's hard to track that. But you you can always tell what you did during a sprint. You said it that was your velocity, and how many story points did you finish up, and um, and then you get to the, the really to the review, and in in my mind, that was the sense of the tracking is when I delivered this to the customer and they took it and said, yep, this is what I was talking about or nope.
1: This is, this is on the right approach. You're on the right path. You're That's going right. right down the right path. This is right. You took a good step.
0: That's right. And the product owner should immediately be like, okay, boom, this one's validated. Let's go. We'll change it over to a predictive right now. You, and you said it earlier, you planned it, you executed it. Now monitoring, controlling, you're, you're looking at, Hey, quality. All right. Did what I produce really match the requirement that that stakeholder through my requirements traceability matrix, I go in there and say, OK, this stakeholder said I want the birdhouse to be white. OK, great. Oh. Is it the right shade of white? Because there's, you know, from <laughs> eggshell all the way to yeah. brilliant white. Uh, and, and you hand that to him and you say, hey, th- hey, boss, is this the white you're talking about, you know, through, you know, scope validation and then acceptance? So I feel like that's some tracking as well when you're talking about the the increments of the project or the iterations of a adapt, I mean a predictive project. So I think everything you said is correct. In my mind, I was thinking to myself, it's it's also gotta be where the product hits the customer. Like where does that touch point? Are you taking it? Do you want to take it? Do you not want to take it? And then as we watch our plan progress through our, like, whatever chart, or schedule, or activity list, however you map through it. In my mind, it was almost easier to track a predictive because you can say on this point of a calendar, I'm here. Right. right. I-
1: Cause you got a schedule, you got, a, you got a, a budget, you've got all these plan, these formalized plans that you put into place and we and relating to scope, schedule and budget. And, and you're just, you're tracking it as you go. we in an adaptive environment, you've only got two weeks worth of scope or thirty days worth of scope to look at. Now you can you can track it within that thirty day period. But like I said, to me, it's a whole lot simpler to track something over thirty days than it is to track it over five years.
0: Yeah, good point.
1: And uh, you get you get m- much more instantaneous feedback. I mean, the the point you made about about delivering something to the customer you you hand it to the customer and you get feedback. You know, the the initial feedback is what was the look on the guy's face when you handed it to him? You know, did he seem excited? You know, was his was his chin going up and down or was he shaking his head side to side? You know, you get you get all that feedback from the customer, which then is a feedback loop into your tracking system. Okay, you know, I I thought I was was doing all the right thing, doing it the right way. And now I see that "Ah, I was awful. I need to adjust a little bit. And then, you know, before I fire for effect. And, uh, so, so yeah, I think that's, uh, that's how the two, you can compare the two.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think a, a good point to make too, is like on the backlog, they can always take and pour more stuff in there. Right. Mm-hmm. I want exactly. this, you don't have an end date. You really don't have an end to your project until the backlog is completely done. And all the features of the product are completely accepted. Like it's just an ongoing project.
1: Right and and it's and it's and and to think that a user or a customer as you no matter how much what they may have initially on the product backlog to think that that's not got More things are not going to be as you go and as you produce something, you hand it to them. You're going to spur thoughts in the customer's mind. Oh yeah, this is really great, and why well, I didn't think about this, but what about doing this now? And we can add this, or we could do this. We could paint it this color. We could stripe it. We can oh, we could do all this other stuff, and uh, and so that just gets added to the product backlog, and it just keeps going. And I'm actually curious on some of these big projects to to figure out. How, when would you ever sell? Like, for example, iPhones. What's the end of iPhones? You know, 147 years from now are we going to be at, at iPhone 111. Or I mean, where, where is the end of iPhone? And the answer is probably never, because technology is going to continue to change. Apple has proven that they are able to take useful technology and adapt it and install it and integrate it into their telephone and deliver it to their customer for about a thousand bucks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's every year or every six whatever release period they have to come out with a new iPhone, it comes out with some new whiz. Oh, the camera's much better. Oh, you got this feature you didn't have before. So there's something always in, and it cost about a thousand bucks. And because their market research has has determined that people are willing to pay about a thousand bucks for a telephone. That's got all these bells and whistles and smartphone that can do all these things. And you can live your life by your phone. The average person in the the world is willing to pay about a thousand bucks for them. And so yeah. that's, that's what they focus on.
0: So. Yeah. You're not wrong. I think that's a really great example of uh, like product management, right? Mm-hmm. They're really good product managers to where they have a, a release cycle which wow that's exactly the stuff we're talking about right here and yeah. so they they're building market research uh, yeah. and and getting analysis from their customers and it's saying hey what features do you like we're going to roll that feature into the next one right yeah. so i mean it's it's a beautiful example of what how this adaptive framework works in a very successful company
1: and i find it a coincidence i guess that the release dates of new iPhones are are tied almost directly to the battery life of the previous iPhone. So once, once, you've, once you've charged and discharged and gone through all the charging cycles of your battery and it, you get to the point that your phone is just not that functional anymore because you can't keep the battery charged, Yeah, you can take it into an Apple store and they can change the battery. there. But they're not going to do it while you're standing there. They're going to have to take it and send it off somewhere. So if you're willing to do without your phone for a couple of weeks, we can put a new battery in it, which, by the way, is probably going to cost about five or six hundred bucks. Or you can buy a new iPhone 14, our newest release that has a brand new battery in it and all these additional features for about a thousand bucks.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And a camera you couldn't have lived without.
1: <laughs> it, exactly. And you know, I think if you're, you know, if you're in your 20s today, if you're smart enough to develop a budget to live off of, a financial budget, you just need to budget add into your family budget that everybody gets a new phone for about a thousand bucks every year. Or, or maybe 16, 18 months. But uh, but you just need to build that into your family budget because you know, no one can live without a phone. No one can function without an iPhone or a smartphone.
0: Right, right on. Wow. As we start to wrap this up, I, mean, I think we covered a lot of ground, but I think it was uh, it was fairly logical when we talked about units of it, iterations, and then we swapped over to the pros and cons of adaptive versus predictive and threw a couple of examples out there. And then we translated to WBS into a not really a backlog, not really a you know, a couple of things here or there, but different cycles within an adaptive iteration and then inputs for scope. Uh, your, your story about the underwater um, transition from manned to unmanned, I think that really tied that together. And then, as we talked about the importance of project tracking, both adaptive and Uh, predictive. I think we hit on a lot of different topics, but they all kind of gelled together nicely towards the end. Uh, Last parting shot, and then we'll wrap it up.
1: It's just, uh, uh, you're never going to run out of realizing that you need to spend time thinking about when you're trying to compare predictive to adaptive methodologies. And that's a good thing if you're a project professional. Okay, you, you need to be constantly analyzing, okay, which what's the best approach? What works best for the company, you know, what's the best business result, uh, and those sort of things. And and you you have to constantly keep, you know, uh educating yourself and 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 trying different things, do it running experiments and and seeing what works and, and not be, you know, you, some of the, the agile principles, you know, are, they talk about, you know, courage, you gotta, you gotta have courage to try something new. And, uh, but it's, uh, it's a good thing. I I think it's a, it's a very, uh, it's an excellent time to be in the project management profession. It's uh, exciting times, you know, things are, are, uh, are, are happening within the the industry. People are no longer accepting the fact that, you know, you get a, uh, you put a construction contract out for bid and you get a price for $7 million dollars. Uh, companies aren't that willing to just accept that and write a con- and write a check or or enter into a contract. They they want analysis done on this, and and the analysis should start with number one: are they meeting all the requirements? And then you know how are they developing that into the scope? And then how does the scope translate to the schedule and budget? And then how are we going to deal with risk? And how are we going to ensure quality? And all these things about project management and they their the companies. Are, are are growing more sophisticated in learning, appreciating the value of good project management in that people who are educated and experienced in project management can add a lot of value to the organization by giving them, shepherding them through this time when they're trying to make these decisions about, hey, is this, you know, should we just accept this, this bid for 7 million or, you know, we got, we got, even though we may have some competitive bids are all about the same price or is this, you know, is this really what we're trying to get to? And uh, so it's a, it's an interesting time. And you, you, if you're going to be a project manager, you need to, to, to uh, spend time and make sure that you're staying up to speed with, with the developments of project management methodologies and, and, and constantly think about, how to apply and what apply, what's applicable and what's not applicable and and um, and to do that. so
0: uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think something you said, I mean just really it's it's super important to know the benefits, the trade-offs of both methodologies so that you can employ the appropriate one for the appropriate project or a hybrid scenario. I mean I think that a lot of projects would benefit from a hybrid project approach. Uh, different tools and techniques our best I agree.
1: like i said i executed hybrid projects and didn't realize i thought i was was executing a predictive project but i was i was using aspects and techniques and tools of adaptive methodology within my predictive uh environment and they worked just well it, they added a lot of value to uh you know to the project And uh, so that's and that's that's why I think it's so it's such a good time to be in project management right now. And you need to learn um, uh, both adaptive, hybrid and predictive methodologies so that you as the professional can make the proper recommendation to your organization about how we should approach this and constantly educate the organization on the different methodologies and the pros of some and the cons of the of the others and and then so that they number one what they what that's going to do is the the senior management of the organization is going to develop a trust in you as a project professional that hey you know this guy really knows what he's talking about and you know he knows how to do what we need him to do and most importantly he knows how to do things that we're not asking him to do but yet he's bringing those things to the table, so it's uh, it's uh, I think it's that's why it's uh, this is a, a great time for people to be you know embarking on careers in project management.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Well, thanks so much for your time, Max. And uh, well, thanks
1: for having me. It's always a pleasure. So
0: absolutely, and we'll see you next time. All right. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the PM Pathfinder series and want to join the profession, certify or maintain your PDUs by visiting vets2pm.com and looking up Project Manager Essential Toolbox or a Bootcamp.